This is The Common Health from the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security, engaging senior leaders on questions of how to address our common health security challenges in this post-COVID moment. I'm J. Stephen Morrison, Senior Vice President here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Thrilled today to be joined on Commonwealth Live by David Miliband, President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Welcome, David. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being with yep. us. It's wonderful to have you with us. You've come here today uh, a short while after the launch of the IRC Emergency Watch List, which came out back in December 13th of last year. An impressive piece of work, lots to unpack from that. So I think what would be a great way to get started here uh, is to have you walk us through the most important elements of this. Just by way of background, uh, David Miliband has served in this position as president and CEO of IRC since 2013. Congratulations on that decade of achievement. Prior to that, he served as the Minister of Foreign Affairs in the UK, 2007-2010, and was a member of Parliament 2001 to 2013. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, it's great to have you, you with it's us. It's good to be here. Um, there's a lot to unpack, as you say, and um, I won't take up too much time, but let me give a, an overview of this document, which um, is our signature uh, publication. It originated as an internal management tool, mm -hmm. preparing and positioning for the crises of the year ahead, but it's become more and more important over the last decade as the crises have multiplied to try and get this out into the public domain because we're running up an escalator that's going down faster and faster, and th that's a massive problem. There are 300 million people in humanitarian need at the moment. Uh, the headlines, understandably, are about Gaza. We have an emergency medical mm -hmm. team in Gaza in an incredibly challenging situation from a humanitarian perspective, desperate situation. But the watch list looks broader. It looks at the 20 countries that we think are going to be at the forefront of humanitarian mm -hmm. crisis in the year ahead. Uh, your, your viewers and listeners may know that the UN says about 300 million people need humanitarian aid to survive. So that's our constituency, if you like. Um, what does the watch list bring out? Well, Gaza is actually number two. Gaza and West Bank are number two on our watch list. Sudan, number one. South Sudan, number three. 25 million people displaced um, and in humanitarian need as a result of the fighting in Sudan. Now, here are three or four, I think, interesting facts coming out of the watch list. The concentration of humanitarian need in the top 20 countries is growing. 86% of the 300 million figure I just quoted uh, are in the 20 countries uh, here. Uh, secondly, I think the um, overlap between conflict and climate crisis mm -hmm. is stronger and stronger. Um, of there are, there are 16 countries in the watch list that are in the top quartile, the top 25% of climate vulnerable countries, according to the Notre mm -hmm. Dame um, index. Now, uh, 14 of them are uh, here in the in, in the watch list. I'm sorry, not 16. Um, 14 of the countries that are in the top quartile of the Notre Dame index for climate vulnerability are on the uh, watch list. And what we argue is that climate crisis now overlaps with conflict. Mm -hmm. um, they're not just separate buckets. And for obvious reasons we can get into, um, the climate crisis increases resource stress. Resource stress is one of the conflict um, multipliers that comes out quite strongly. Third striking thing is the duration 
of conflict, mm-hmm. the, the the prolongation of conflict. Um, seven of the watchlist countries have not seen a single year of peace in the last decade, and um, the 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 sense that the the conflict that the most likely outcome of a civil war is further fighting is I'm afraid the syndrome that we're seeing more Mm -hmm. and more. So the prolongation of conflict, that's got big implications for humanitarian work. And then just the fourth thing to bring out at the beginning is the internationalization of civil conflict. Mm -hmm. More and more external meddling, support, sponsorship, um, and Sudan is 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 an obvious example of that. So that's what we're seeing. Uh, we, We took a slight detour in the report this year to say, there are some things you think, you might think, Come out of this, but they're myths, yeah. and we thought it was important to challenge the myths because the myths get in the way of our um, work. I mean, for example, um, myth, probably the most prevalent um, myth, is that most refugees are in rich countries. Wrong. I mean, right. the, the refugee quote unquote crisis that exists in Europe or in uh, America is serious, but. We show three quarters of all the world's refugees and asylum seekers are in poor and lower middle income countries, not in uh, rich countries. There's a myth that, oh, well, as long as you get the trucks across the border with some aid, you've done, you've satisfied humanitarian need. Wrong. As we're seeing in Gaza, getting across the border is one thing. Getting to people in need so that they can safely access aid is another thing. Um, Third myth that you need. If you can't get the government to work, so-called capacity building, you can't get anything to work. Wrong. Uh, we're showing that partnership with non-state actors, mm-hmm. civil society, can be a very effective and efficient way of reaching people um, in need. Um, myth that the climate crisis is so grave that we haven't got time to worry about adaptation. We've got to focus everything on mitigation. Mm-hmm. We can't afford that. When I was Secretary of State for the Environment 15 years ago, um, adaptation. When you t- if you talked about adaptation, it was almost like surrendering to climate change. We've we've failed on mitigation. Uh, we've got massive catch up to do as a world on mitigation of climate change. But we've got to do adaptation at the same time because the climate crisis is here. Um, but because we're a solutions oriented NGO, um, it's a detour to ta- to, to um, address the myths. We, we do get down to practicalities of what needs to be done. And just to run through the priorities that we um, that we highlight uh, here. Um, one, climate adaptation in fragile states, which are not just climate vulnerable, but have the least investment in climate resilience. Um, climate adaptation is possible. We're showing how even in the most fragile and conflict-affected situations, it's possible to um, help, for example, rural farming communities mm-hmm. adapt to climate change. but. They need help on seed strengthening. They need help on um, farmer information systems. They need much more of the humanitarian sector's work to be anticipatory rather than uh, reactive. Um, priority number uh, two for uh, practical uh, action is to uh, change the way the World Bank works in fragile and conflict mm-hmm. uh, settings. There's a lot of talk about the finance gap in fragile and conflict states, which the new leadership of the bank wants to address. They're also flagging, and we're flagging with them and for them, there's a delivery gap, not just a finance gap. Mm-hmm. And uh, that calls for different ways of working in fragile conflicts. Just so you know, 50% of the world's extreme poor now live in fragile and conflict states. It's going to become 66%. So um, there's a change in geography of poverty 
uh, in the world. It's not India and China anymore who have uh, the most of the world's poor. There are more extreme poor in Nigeria than there are in India, even though the population's uh, a fifth of the size. Um, gender equality, if, if uh, women and girls in humanitarian settings around the world had investment in proportion to the number of political speeches that have been given about the prioritization of their needs, they'd be far better off than they actually are uh, today. It remains a massive gap. We say that unless you, unless uh, that the, to be a successful humanitarian organization, you have to be a feminist organization that takes seriously mm -hmm. structural inequalities that face women and girls in the conflict settings that we work in. We give some examples of that. Um, just one more that I think is um, is important and is topical. Uh, international laws and norms mm -hmm. on the conduct of war are absolutely critical to delivery for civilian populations caught up in um, conflict. The proportion of victims of war who are now civilians is 80 or 90%. Um, soldiers get killed in war, but civilians get killed in much greater numbers. And the tide of impunity that we're seeing in conflicts around the world, where laws and norms that hard fought after the Second World War, um, there was no golden age, but they set a benchmarks for protection of civilians, both from the fighting and for access to humanitarian aid. Those laws and norms are not being mm -hmm. adhered in more and more cases. I, I mentioned before we started, I'm the, co the chair of the advisory panel of something called the Atlas of Impunity. This was published um, first last uh, February at the Munich Security Conference. The second edition is coming out mm -hmm. um, this February. But the, the, the need to turn words about adherence to international humanitarian law into action to, to defend international humanitarian law is absolutely vital. So um, I hope that uh, your viewers and listeners will go to the IRC website, rescue.org, uh, to access this. No myths, just facts, which feels in the uh, spirit of the, uh, of the CSIS. And in the spirit of this podcast, um, the common health is about health, but it's about more than health. And we, we talk a bit about that uh, in here, and I'm very happy to get into that in the, in the conversation that we're about to have. Thank you so much, and congratulations. I think this really is a very important instrument, this annual watch list that you've put out. A, a couple of questions. One is on the big picture. This is a moment in which we've got multiple geopolitical crises that dominate the tension, and they're in the ascent. I mean, the, the, what's happening in, between Palestine and Israel, most notable, it figures as your number two priority, which is quite important. As you point out, no civilians are, are of any kind are safe inside Gaza. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a crisis that's now widening. We've got the continued crisis in Ukraine uh, and, the, and the threat of, threat of uh, rising uh, confrontation in China and Taiwan and the like. So we do face an exceptional environment geopolitically in trying to break through you hooked this in some fashion to the cop in terms of the release uh, at the time of the of the cop, uh, uh, which was which was great, and you're 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 putting so much emphasis in this report on climate. But in terms of tactical tactics uh, in this particular moment in time, how do you break through? I mean, the wealthy and most powerful countries in the world, it's more and more difficult. It seems to me to get their attention focused upon the issues that you're laying out here. This is a, your job has become much more difficult in these last few years. 
So what's going to work, do you think? Well, two things I think are important. It's a very good question. Um, two things. First of all, let's get our analytical framing right. I, I think we do, we've got a good take on what's going on. If you read the last um, US national security strategy, it says no. two things are happening. There's geopolitical fragmentation, so-called, I, I prefer the term multi-alignment to multipolarity. I think the, the idea of a multi-aligned world mm -hmm. is powerful. So you've got geopolitical fragmentation. It's not just US-China. There's much more going on. But you've got fragmenting mm. global political order. And you've got growing global risks. Right. Pandemics, climate, right. uh, economic, but also nuclear, which doesn't get talked about very much. And they're interacting with each other in precisely the way that you uh, draw out in respect of the interaction of climate and conflict. So that's, I think, the first thing to say. Secondly, in terms of getting attention, the bandwidth issue is a massive issue because, of course, it's not just multiple international conflicts and crises. It's not like the domestic scene in countries like the US. I'm not an American citizen, but I'm a resident of New York, which still counts as part of America. And... Uh, um, I watch, you know, you've got a massive set of issues that you're addressing into right. the, the, the Council on Foreign Relations. I don't know if we're allowed to mention them here. They're yes, some, of course. some kind of think tank that's yeah. uh, maybe in yeah. New York. Um, I think they have an office in Washington as well. I, I did an event with them, and they their, um, their version of the watch list says the biggest foreign policy risk this year right is here. actually uh, internal. Right. So the bandwidth question is, is, I think, a massive issue. Now, how do we think about that? We think about it in two or three ways. One, when governments are in retreat from big global problems, NGOs and philanthropists and the corporate sector have to step up as the solution right. makers. Yeah. And that's a big emphasis of, yeah. of ours, that um, governments, the best we can hope for at the moment from them is that they come behind, come in behind proven solutions because they give us scale. They're, they're, they're not going to take the risks to find the solutions. So there's, a, there's an important angle. Secondly, the rich world and the Western world are no longer the same thing. There are responsibilities to be distributed more globally. That's a very long, hard road, but I think it's important. Hmm. Um, it's important to say it. Thirdly, the argument has to be made inside the United States, inside uh, Europe, that if you don't contribute to addressing the world's problems, the world's problems will become your problems. And an underestimated part or an underinformed part of the southern border debate is about unresolved problems mm. south of the border, which the, the primary responsibility is not America to solve those problems, but it has a role. Europe, when I th think about the situations in sub-Saharan Africa, there's a big European interest, strategic interest, not just a moral interest. So I think that I feel it's important to remake the argument that foreign policy, so-called, isn't just about what goes on abroad. It has an impact on what right. goes on at home. But you agree that this is really an exceptionally difficult moment. The It's always difficult, it seems to me, for the humanitarian world to come forward with an argument that says, the situation's terrible and it's getting worse and you need to pay greater attention, because we've heard those arguments a lot. And so people turn off and they turn off. So you have to sort of break through that apathy. You have to break through that sort of calloused Callist approach on some of the, you know, well, we've heard that before. Sudan, we've been dealing with for years. The fact that it's moved to the first and the third position is kind of an extraordinary thing. And I want you to say a bit more about mm -hmm. that. But for the moment, if we could just focus on 
let's take the United States. How you're here in Washington, you're going to be engaging with with the administration and with others uh, around uh, trying to focus on the agenda that you're you're advancing. We're in the midst of a democratic crisis. We're in the midst of an electoral process. We're in, we're the most divided. We're in the period of a nativist, isolationist, populist moment in our history. There's a few precedents, but we've never lived through something quite like this. We've got a, a White House that's prospects of winning are, are, are up in the air and, and dealing with these multiple geopolitical crises that themselves are a source of debate here. So what is it that you can ask for now as you come here in this moment? What do you want to see in terms of the administration? And how do you grade this administration in terms of its of its uh, humanitarian response, because typically the United States has been a pretty strong leader on these matters, budgetarily, ethically, uh, and it's certainly shown remarkable leadership in many of these conflicts that you've painted. Well, I think there's a lot, there's a lot in there. I mean, I think first of all, we've got to come to New York, to, to Washington, not to say, look at all these problems, yes. because they know right. what the problem, we gotta come and say, Here's what you can do about these right. problems. And we're saying malnutrition is 45 million kids are acutely malnourished at any one time at the moment. That means in the course of a year, hundreds to 200 million yeah. kids are acutely malnourished. We've got, and 80% of them get no help at the moment. We've got, a, we've got a program that could actually tackle that. And we're talking to congressional leaders and administration yeah. about that. And we see, we see malnutrition as the apex of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. If, if you've got malnutrition, there's loads of other things going wrong in health, education, poverty, uh, underneath in the pyramid. So we've got to be the, the solution makers around malnutrition, around education for populations that are on the move, on early childhood development, we've mm-hmm. got some interesting things. On immunization, we've got a fantastic program for zero-dose kids that mm-hmm. are there. And I think we our first job is to inspire policymakers with a sense that there are things they can do. Secondly, we've got to build coalitions. There's no point in right. doing this in a narrow right. uh, way. A U.S. Global Leadership Coalition is a big mm. part of that. Um, but we've got to build coalitions, and we've got to be scrupulously um, nonpartisan in the way right. that we uh, do that. We've got to be the expert witnesses about what's really mm-hmm. going on and what can be done. Thirdly, we've got to be opportunistic. Now, we're, we're here on January the 11th. Uh, you know that the Ukraine... Um, Israel funding bill got uh, got rebuffed and stuck right. and the rest of it. Right. There's an opportunity, though, in that moment to make sure that when this bill does come through, the humanitarian international aid aspects are properly dealt with and the administration gets high grades for... There is that, a heavy component. There's a heavy component. And in that bill. I mean, just to so that your listeners don't just breathe a sigh of relief, what what that heavy commitment does is sustain American commitment for 2024 at the level it was in 2023. So it's not like massive breakthrough. Um, You spend about 0.17% of national income on international aid. It's not not 17%, 0.17%. and so we've got to we've got to sustain and, and build on that. Now, I think there's one other part of this which you um, you suggested that your system should make the alignment of aid questions with diplomatic questions stronger. Just one example: the director of national intelligence was in 
Democratic Republic of Congo and in Rwanda last month, um, talking to presidents and prime minister to, to, to negotiate a 72-hour ceasefire in the east of Democratic Republic of Congo, which is one of the countries on our mm. list. The alignment of the of the money and the diplomacy is an important part of that. And that, that obviously is susceptible to bandwidth questions too. Many people concerned that Ukraine is going to suffer because of the attention right. that's going to, to Gaza. But our contribution, we got a, we're a humanitarian agency, not a uh, not a political agency. Are you hopeful that it's possible to avoid the crowd out effect of Ukraine and and Gaza? And you know, the, these are a massive tap on our budgets, the commitments that have been made on the humanitarian yeah, although, side. But, but we've yet well, the, the we've humanitarian been able, is cheap compared to the military. No, I understand all of that, and the U.S. Uh, one of the one of the interesting facets of the history of U.S. engagement on humanitarian humanitarian response has been very strong bipartisan foundation of support for it historically. And 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 it's it's been a bit of an oasis in terms of trying to avoid politicization. That's come under a lot of stress, as well as the sort of just the fact that the demand side has become so so high. How are you doing in terms of making sure that you have strong Republican support? Well, one interesting on thing is that in the um, in the years of President Trump, in yeah. the four years uh, after 2017 to 2020, Congress sustained American international yes. humanitarian engagement. The, the sort of uh, Lindsey Graham, Chris Coons right. partnership was right. um, important leadership in, in holding the line mm -hmm. on that. And... I think our best contribution to their argument is to say this is how your aid makes a difference. Uh, not just live saves, but the strategic play. Because right. remember, as I inferred earlier, there's plenty of other players in these places who are yeah. um, playing. And American absence, Western absence, if you like, if you want to use that expression, can be highly notable. Um, I think it's important to say in the Ukraine context, Europeans have paid more. The financial, the majority of the financial support, if you add the military and the humanitarian and the development, the economic together, it's come from Europe. There's reason for that. Ukraine's on the edge of Europe. So right. there, there, there right. is burden sharing going on. But on the military side, the US is absolutely critical. Right. And the US- 60, 70% of the flow. To, hold, to holding the line. Right. And- uh, that's um, obviously a, a very under very significant strain, and so I think you asked, am I am I hopeful about the ability to 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 work on many fronts at the same time? I think the the evidence is that it's very very hard to do so, and there are many reasons why it's it's so important that the situation in Gaza is addressed. Uh, but one of them is that there's a lot else going on. Yeah. While, while you mentioned Gaza, um, we, we, Len Rubinstein from Johns Hopkins and I have been doing a lot of work recently looking at what's happening in Gaza, and we've got a, our own separate video series looking mm -hmm. at the human toll of Gaza. And we'll be putting a piece out this week uh, that's examining sort of where are we. And the situation is, is astonishing in terms of the, a population that has that is trapped, no escape, no security, the, the level of destruction of infrastructure, profound, particularly in the north, but it's 
it, we're staring at an indefinite wasteland in and 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 now the the health situation's deteriorating is going to contribute to even higher mortality you know it's then the bombardment phase and no one's coming to the rescue and the discussion has been largely focused on well what happens when the fighting ends and what might what might be the governing arrangements and the possibilities they're all very important issues but in terms of looking at the immediate crisis we're drifting into a dangerous situation of a semi-permanent wasteland and with no immediate strategy for how to how to even even before a ceasefire to try and stabilize this population. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say that the situation is not just astonishing, it's astonishingly bad. And we're not just drifting into dangerous territory, we're in, uh, the Gazans are in very uh, dangerous. Dystopic. Uh, dystopic territory. Uh, the, the testimony that I can give is only what the staff of the International Rescue Committee is seeing. Yeah. Um, we have a emergency medical team working in a hospital in southern Gaza at the moment. Uh, we have aspirations to do more work in other parts of the of Gaza, including in the north uh, that you uh, mentioned. It takes a lot to shock humanitarians, but it's a shocking situation. Uh, yes, the scale of the physical devastation is evident from any drone footage or anything else you look at, but the human toll on bodies and minds of people there is just astonishingly deep. And the, the, the trauma, the, the trauma, even if the conflict ended today, is, is massive. But you're right, I think, to flag that the, the, the danger from bombardment is matched by the danger of the consequences of bombardment for public health, for water and sanitation, um, the communicable disease situation is terrifying to people there. And that's Should we begin, should there be a, a new mobilization of folks like yourselves along with Palestinian uh, leaders along with UN agencies and NGOs and others to pr and gov national governments like the United States to really press to stabilize this situation because we're drifting into an ever worsening well, scenario. Our, our, our conclusion is absolutely clear. From a humanitarian perspective, the only way to protect life is to halt the fighting. That we we can do some work while the fighting is going on and the, the conduct of the conflict um, continues. I'm incredibly proud of what our teams have been able to, to mm -hmm. do, but it's absolutely clear that both for humanitarian aid delivery reasons and for um, treatment of the injured, you know, I don't want to go into too deep, but, you know, one-year-old kids with, a, with limbs blown off, terrible burns of those who survive. Um, for, for that reason, um, too, and for the fact that there is continuing danger from bombardment, including for our staff, uh, there's no other conclusion that we can come to from a humanitarian perspective. The only way to fully serve the humanitarian imperative is for the fighting to stop, for there to be a sustained ceasefire. And that's 
we need to continue making that right. case. Certainly, if this is what you're you're hinting at, any notion that this current situation should be normalized and just become kind of background music wallpaper uh, would would be a an absolute would be to pile disaster upon disaster. Well, you know, you're putting out the impunity atlas again uh, at the Munich Security Conference next month. Uh, impunity is a huge issue. Conditioning, conditioning security assistance is a huge issue, as well as calling for a ceasefire. What more should we be doing on those fronts in well, terms they, of conditioning security assistance, but also in terms of trying to guarantee some level of accountability? So the, the, the Atlas of Impunity measures impunity across five different dimensions, yeah. um, conflict, governance, human rights, economic exploitation, environmental degradation. Um, the data is um, often annual in this. Yes. It's very data-based. So some of uh, a lot of what's happening in, the, in, in, in Israel and in Gaza will not yet be picked up in the, in the figures right. that, 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 that um, come out, but eventually it will certainly uh, follow through. Look, our strength, though, um, I hope I bring strength from my previous uh, role, but I have to be quite um, uh, disciplined in making sure that I do my current job, not a, a previous job. So questions of aid, conditionality, etc., those are political questions for Americans and American uh, policymakers to wrestle with. The humanitarian contribution, I think, is to document and explain what the situation mm -hmm. is. And that's what we think we have a responsibility to do, as well as to do our humanitarian work, um, which we can only partially do because of the way the war is being conducted. Right. I mean, you're, you're like many other NGOs that are attempting to work there. You're largely thwarted in your ability to put people in safely, Palestinian or international staff, and deploy them. Yeah, the humanitarian mission has basically disappeared. Well, no, it's not true that it's disappeared, but it it is facing an incredible uphill struggle in all of the countries actually that we yeah. uh, document yeah. in our in our watch list. But it's extreme level of difficulty in uh, in uh, in Gaza. I mean, wherever there is active conflict, it's it thwarts to right. use your word, humanitarian action. Some, a point you made earlier, the density of the um, Gaza situation, the co-mingling of uh, civilians and fighters is a big part of the, uh, the, the, the challenge. And, but, but, but it's not the case that we're not making a difference. Or we're not making enough of a difference and we can't make right. more of a difference because of the way the war is being fought. Yes. Let's move on to a couple of other issues. Um, you put a lot of emphasis on the climate argument. You, may, you have some specific figures uh, around uh, resource allocations towards adaptation. This whole, whole tension between adaptation versus mitigation, that debate continues. You've taken a very strong position on this. Tell me, do you think this climate argument is going to resonate with policymakers in terms of, you know, you're bringing forward data saying that you look at Somalia, look at Sudan, look at Syria. Okay, these are places where there's dramatic evidence of the link. Uh, what difference do you think this is going to make? Well, I think the think? humanitarian community and the climate community have not done a great job at working together. Yeah. And I think that's undermined both, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we've not done a great job at risk mapping. We've not done a great job at solution making. Mm 
Um, we've not done a great job at joining up. I think we're, we're doing a better job. I mean, it's incredible, by the way. This 28th COP that has happened mm-hmm. is the first time there's ever been a conflict and climate day or declaration, yes. which yes. is an extraordinary situation when you stop and think about it. Um, so we've got to do a better job. What kind of resonance? I think we're in the new leadership of the World Bank is critical in this, and they're Banga. very open, yeah. Ajay Banga and his team. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hopeful on that score. Um, I think that the the argument that rich countries are recognizing the need to invest in climate resilience, but poor countries need to be helped to do so, is getting resonance. The whole mm-hmm. Barbados mm-hmm. initiative by Mrs. Motley, the work she's been doing with um, the government of India and the government of France, I think is important in that respect. Mm-hmm. This is in somewhere in the weeds of the international system, um, but I think is important. And the basic argument that says, look, after, after Hurricane Sandy, New York did its uh, resilience work in a serious way. Um, that needs to be you, you can't you can't afford that level of uh, investment. But the idea that at the moment it's satisfactory that one dollar per year per Somali is spent on climate resilience right. is, is, is 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 makes no sense at all. I mean, what we're seeing in terms of climate and health, there was a climate and health day dedicated the cop an important event there was, it was the some, same day as the conflict some day money, so it was a some, shared day some money attached to that some new initiatives there's been a shift of consciousness certainly we see institutions starting to internalize these priorities and begin to act but it's very fragmented the financing levels are woeful it's very hard oftentimes to see what the real priorities are and there's lots of tensions among stovepiped budgets and programs, and the cultures, the cultures and habits of the health community and the climate community are quite different. Yes, that's a very good quite point. Quite different. That's a very good point. And I think you could make the same case on the humanitarian community. So I, I think that's a very good point. And the sort of the routines and the rhythm of the communities is is, is different. But we've got to learn from each other, and we've got to work together. How do you crack that code? Is well, it I think Alex? By, ba- is it AJ Bonga? No, I tell you how the- we. Uh, my my learning on this, of course, I don't. You know, uh, we're all in new territory. But my answer to that is, do stuff. Mm-hmm. Get out there and do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, strategic planning and all that's important. We're we're big advocates of new decision rules that force the pace. Fifty percent of uh, climate finance should go on adaptation. Within adaptation, 25% should go to fragile and conflict states. Within fragile and conflict states, 20% should go to uh, civil society organizations. Within civil society organizations, at least 5% is on anticipatory action. We need to force the pace. But we've got to get out there and do it. In South Sudan, in Sudan, in Somalia, uh, in Mali, um, in Afghanistan. Yes. Let's put the money to work. Mm-hmm. And the argument, I understand why there's been an argument, have we reached 93 billion a year? Have we reached 95 billion a year? Have we reached 100 billion? Let's go and spend the money that's there. What what would be success for A.J. Banga at the World Bank? You know, he's committed to global public goods, fragile states, conflicted settings, inter- cutting across these disciplines. He's committed around pandemic preparedness and response. He's looking to change the, the, the mindset and the funding, funding streams and the conditionalities. He's calling for a pretty, pretty major change. Mm-hmm. What would, from your well, standpoint- Well, that's an easy answer to that. There's a, what, there's would the, what would success I mean, look like in three to five years? I think he'd think it's good news, but 
Um, it's challenging news, but there's an easy answer, which is that we know extreme poverty is going down in stable states, but it's going up in fragile and conflict states. Yeah. So the test of success is simple. <laughs> Do the number of extreme poor in fragile and conflict states stop going up and start coming down? Yeah. That's the test. But what would what would you what do you what would be success in terms of the change changes within the bank? Okay. Like, uh, my point is, what do you? What would be the optimal? Yeah, but we, I think it's first of all it's important to say we are very outcome driven, not just output driven. Yes. Yeah. And but the outcome is singular and clear. Are there fewer people living in extreme yes. poverty? The goal, yeah. the new goal of the bank is to end extreme poverty on a livable planet. Yeah. And the, the, the simplest, toughest metric is, is the number of extreme poor going down, not up. Now, you then perfectly rightly say, well, okay, what are the contributory uh, success factors? In, in our model, the next click down is, well, there are two key elements to it. There's a finance gap and there's a delivery gap. Right. World bank lending is a share of total lending in developing countries going down, not up. Problem. Uh, climate adaptation, going to richer countries, not poor uh, countries. Problem. Uh, so you can see there's a series of aspects that IDA, International yes. Development Association, too yeah. small, yeah. needs to be tripled according to the G20 uh, yeah. panel led by Har uh, Larry Summers um, and others. So there's there's elements of fixing the finance gap, but then if you fix the finance gap but don't fix the delivery gap, in other words, how to reach... Right the disadvantaged communities, the hard, so-called hard-to-reach communities. Um, I always, whenever people say that the communities are hard to reach, no, the services are hard to reach. We've got to change our uh, mm -hmm. mindset. Um, the delivery gap requires a totally different modus operandi than one which says, well, we'll, get, we'll fly to the capital, we'll deal with the central government, we'll have an action plan, and then oh, four years later, nothing's actually happened. Yeah. Um, and... The, 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 the commitment of the bank to a new partnership charter, that's not just partnership between the bank and central government. It's got to be a new way of working in fragile and conflict states that recognizes capacities of governments are challenged. Mm -hmm. We call it a people-centered approach. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the next click down. Okay. In the time that remains, I want to talk about uh, a couple of specific countries that you've highlighted here and then i want to close with with a question around what are some of the positive developments that we can point to to prove the case that putting a much higher investment in these issues can deliver results but set that aside that'll be our closing segment sudan has raced back to the fore what happened in this last year is also astonishing uh what's happened within sudan Southern Sudan's about to, about, uh, South Sudan's about to uh, go through an electoral process. It's very fragile and, and, and in a pretty, pretty poor state itself. But what's happening in, in Sudan proper uh, has, has been gargantuan, but has sort of moved off the screen. It right? never got on the screen, I'm afraid. I mean, last. And so say a bit about so this, because that's your top line country. Not a lot of talk here in town about Sudan. Top of the list. Yep. Um, so 2019, end of uh, right. the rule of Bashir, civilian right. government, 2021, coup, 2023, the military splits in two right. Right. and starts fighting. And the ripple effects are huge. I mean, th this is extraordinary. 
Khartoum was a city of eight million people. It's been depopulated. Right. Um, and Sudan, through all its decades of internal war, has never had anything like this, right? Well, hang on. Here's the thing. The, the, the danger is it has in, in the following way. So rapid support force, Sudan armed forces right. clashing, supported by different internal actors, right. back to my point about internationalized civil conflict. But related but separate, what's happening in Darfur, mm-hmm. and this is where those who are expert tell me uh, they see horrific echoes of 2002, three, four. I don't want to get over my skis on that, but there's there, there should be real mm-hmm. alarm. 25 million people, as I say, in the country in humanitarian need. One and a half million refugees, they're not ending up in America. They're in Chad. They're in South Sudan. There are people fleeing from Sudan to South Sudan, even though South Sudan is one of the poorest countries in the world. Quite a few of those are South Sudanese going home. Right. But there's also Sudanese going to um, South Sudan. Um, and a very weak and fragmented diplomatic Effort. process to try to stop. That, that's the first priority, to stop the fighting. Um, there may be some incentives for each side to stop, but obviously their external sponsors need to need to be part of that. And that's where there's there's desperate need for for weight to be applied. And it's a it's it's very bleak there at the moment we've got T we've had to move our our HQ. Um we're still operating in four provinces. We're in South Sudan, we're in Chad. I mean Chad's got nine hundred thousand refugees are in yeah. Chad in total, four hundred and fifty thousand new ones. So I don't know if it needs to be on the front page, but it's, it, it needs to be much closer to the front burner. How I do think- you reprioritize this among those? I mean, those who jumped in, including Washington, who jumped into the early negotiating efforts. Yeah, they were only allowed into the cooled. To, they were only allowed into part of the negotiating efforts. There's, right. a, there's an overlap. There's a Jeddah process led by Saudi Arabia, right. but the Emiratis say that they're not being allowed to be part of it. There's an IGAD uh, process, African-led right. uh, process. Uh, it needs some focus. Um, we think an envoy would be um, helpful in providing a point person uh, on this. We think Through the Secretary General? Y- Secretary yeah, General? but also from within the U.S., I think would help in the U.S. Yeah. system. We had one something like that with Mike Feldman. Yes. Um, so I think there's, there's room for some joining up there. Um, I'm going to be in the region next month, so I'm hoping to come back with more mm-hmm. information about it. Um, in a way, we're never. It's impo- it would be wrong to think that we're, the American public is ever going to become expert on the um, the Sudan question. But there have been tw- periods in well, our history it, where Sudan dominated so the debate. Just let me Washington. finish the point. It'd be wrong to think the American public is going to be an expert on it. It's wrong to believe that the American public can't be mobilized about it. And just right. think back twenty years yeah. when there was a massive mobilization yeah. around Darfur. Darfur, and we think that's important part of this process of explanation that we're trying to do through our watch list. And the fact that Sudan has vaulted from being a story that gave people hope to one that gives them a sense of dread, I think should it should be a mobilizing factor. Uh, once, one question. Uh, you, you, Haiti's on your list. Uh, of course, we have now an effort. The Kenyan police are going to be coming in with the deployment. The report's fairly pessimistic about the prospects for stabilizing the situation in Haiti. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, I'm not an expert on Haiti at all. So um, we, we're working through partners um, there. I think that anyone who 
looks at it and, and says they've got a silver bullet on this, you you, you know too much, um, you know, to, to suggest that. There's obviously a massive security question. There's a massive set of political questions. Yeah. But there's also a massive humanitarian question, which we're at least able to address some of the symptoms of the problem, yeah. getting the roots of it. And this, the security politics dynamic is obviously fundamental to it. Um, I think the Kenyan interest is very interesting. I think the, the 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 determination of Kenya to put itself at the forefront of a range of questions, economic, climate, as well as um, intergovernmental and security, I think is quite striking. And um, I don't want to pour cold water on that at all. Okay. All right. The, one last thing before we get to the closing question. Ecuador, you it's an interesting case also where it's it's jumped onto your list and 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 it's the the dominant the lead theme is state trafficking in drugs and imported instability uh, through uh, from Colombia and 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 various gang related stuff. But you put a finger here on state drug trafficking, and that's a bit of a standout too. Say a bit more. Yeah, about I mean, that. I'm actually really uh, proud is not quite the right word, but struck because we yeah. say at the front of our report that we use sixty plus qualitative right. and quantitative right. indicators. Yeah. And we say it's helped us predict 85 to 95% of the uh, crisis. We don't have a perfect record. We didn't get Ukraine um, right. Yes, we didn't get Ukraine right in 2022 um, because we were doing the work in September, October of uh, right. 2021. But we published in December, as you say, and the situation in Ecuador has developed in exactly the way that we um, feared which is that you've got this historically peaceful country, but with a massive drug um, issue. We've got also a climate element with um, uh, El Nino, and you've got um, threats to political stability from the from the violence. And as your viewers and listeners who've seen the latest news from Ecuador right. will say, well, actually, that that's right. I mean, it was a case for some preventative right. diplomacy, I'm afraid. And... You know, we said here, state-led militarized responses to crime risk further fueling insecurity and displacement, undermining the ability of rural communities and Venezuelan refugees to access services and afford basic um, goods. Um, moreover, the crisis in Ecuador will continue to contribute to historic levels of regional displacement and migration. That's actually been borne out by what's happened in, even in the weeks since we published yeah. the report. Yeah. Thank you. I want to close on a positive note, talking about some of the developments that have occurred that give you hope, that prove some of your points about uh, uh, the need to focus with purpose and with a clear strategy on some of these issues. Uh, I want to mention Ukraine because we haven't talked about Ukraine. Ukraine's still in crisis. The status of its own societies under just enormous stress and continued threat. It's frayed. It's fra it, it, the clear gaps on many levels. Uh, within Ukraine, but then the story in terms of the respect and treatment and integration of refugees is a, is, a, yeah. is, a, is an impressive story, and that gets lost too in some of the narrative. So I wanted to ask you, as you sit back, th this report is meant to focus on ending apathy, put a focus on the prioritization, those that are innocent, dispel myths, and motivate and activate policymakers. I get that. But you also need to counter the nothing's going to work yeah. argument. And you need to bring people back to understand that investments have paid off yeah. in very significant ways. Yeah, so that's a great point. Look, the macro story is that 2023 was a bad year. Yeah. And there's no, no, no two ways 
about it. And there's an irony. Six months ago, you'd have said, well, name me a country where things are turning around. But I might have said Yemen. Yeah. Because they got a peace right. agreement. But you yeah. wouldn't say that now, given what's yeah. happening in the Red Sea. Um, so uh, the, 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 the contrast, though, to the macro level, and this is what creates frustration for us, the micro level, 2023 saw some developments that I think, three developments I want to mention, which make me think we could make a dent on this. Number one, we get the results of a study of early childhood development intervention in the Middle East, which we've been, we won the MacArthur Award with Sesame Workshop. It turns out in Lebanon, we've shown you can make a year's worth of pre-primary progress through 11 weeks of our Alan Simpson uh, program. Mm -hmm. Um, which was uh, innovated through through COVID and is about early treating trauma amongst kids. We helped 27,000 uh, kids uh, recover from malnutrition in Mali. We showed you can get we showed you can get a 20 to 30 percent efficiency saving in by catching kids earlier with moderate uh, malnutrition. Um, and just this week, uh, I've been catching up on a program funded by Gavi, the Global Alliance on Vaccines mm -hmm. and Innovations. Uh, to immunize zero-dose kids in East Africa. Uh, we reached 700,000 zero-dose kids who were considered beyond the reach of authorities in the first nine months of the program. So what fuels me is that actually we, it's not just about money, it's about mandates and focus, you, yep. you said. Um, the way I put it is don't let policymakers hide behind the excuse that they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that they can do if they read the report. Thank you. David, congratulations. Thank you so much for making Thank time you, to Stephen. be with us today. Look forward to talking further at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, look forward to the Atlas of Impunity, the next iteration of that, and come back again. Thank you very much, Stephen. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.